You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect. But expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls. Calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Awareness Month. Now, last week, I, I haven't got to put up uh, the episode yet at this point, but myself and my friend Dan Ventress talked together about our lives as apologists on the spectrum. And today, we're going to be talking with Sarah Enkenman. Now, who is she? She currently works at Online for Life as the Director of Pregnancy Resource Center Relations and is the founder of the International Society of Women in Apologetics. She is currently pursuing a doctorate of education and graduated with a master's in Christian leadership from Grand Canyon University. She received her bachelor's in biblical studies at Calvary Chapel Bible College and has a second in Christian studies from Grand Canyon University. She is currently teaching an intro to apologetics class at Maranatha Chapel School of Ministry in San Diego. In the past, she has taught women in faith, drama and film, and apologetics to Islam at Calvary Chapel Bible College and apologetics and worldviews, church history, and comparative religions at Maranatha High School in Rancho Bernardo, California. She also currently speaks across the country on topics like equipping your kids, the case for the anti-abortion position, apologetics to Islam, seeking something more, the argument from desire, why apologetics, the definition of truth, God's existence, miracles, the reliability of a Bible and refroning Jesus for case for his existence, death, deity, and resurrection. She has also written a curriculum to equip the average busy Christian woman in apologetics. She blogs as a valuable apologist and is currently working on a book entitled Seeking Something More on the Argument from, Argument from Desire. Phew. Sarah Enkenman, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering after reading about how you have time for anything else. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I like to stay busy. <laughs> yep, I understand that one. Now, a lot of people are about, this might be the first time they're getting to hear about you. So uh, how did you get to be doing what you're doing today? Um, well, I went to a Bible college and kind of wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. And it just turned out that my professor happened to be an apologist so he um, kind of saw that I kind of had a knack for it and he um, you know started helping me make decisions about where I wanted to go to school and what I wanted to do with my life and um, so I ended up going to seminary after that and um, met with uh, Dr. Norman Geisler and and, uh, basically they just encouraged me to start this uh, women's apologetics ministry and um, it's just kind of taken off from there so I've been writing and speaking since then and um it's just been really great so 
was this professor anyone we would know about here? Um, it's a Dr. Joseph Holden, and um, he's the president of Veritas Seminary. Mm -hmm. uh, you and I did get to meet at also at the New Orleans conference. I think you were speaking on Ever, right? Um, I was speaking on basically the, the, the case for choosing the greater good when faced with conflicting absolutes. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that now. <laughs> and I, I, I do remember also that the guy who was speaking right after you in that same room, I, I don't think he, he was really worth listening to, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and just in case anyone thinks I, I'm beating up on someone, I was the one who spoke immediately after Sarah in that room. So, <laughs> so I, if I'm beating up on anyone, it's only myself here. Now... Before we get into what we're talking about on the show, you mentioned the International Society of Women in Apologetics. Can you tell us about that some? Um, yeah. So if you go to womeninapologetics.com, um, you'll go, you'll see the website. And um, basically what it is, it's a group of women apologists across the country who um, we're just, we've gotten together and we support each other's ministries and um, you know, we talk regularly and we, we support each other's blogs, we repost articles. Um, it's really a way of just connecting the current women in the apologetics field and encouraging um, future young women who might want to get into this field to um, go ahead and enter it because I think there's just been a lot of stigma against women um, being in that field. So uh, our goal is to show them that, yes, there are women doing it. They're doing it really well and that we need more to join the ranks. Um, it's also a way to equip moms um, with, uh, you know, education so that they can go in turn equip their ki kids to answer tough questions about the faith. So um, I've pulled a lot of the resources in our curriculum from the various women that um, do apologetics, and um, that's free and online for anybody that um, wants to download it. So our goal is basically to bridge the gap between the seminary and the home. A lot of women can't get to seminary or, or do that kind of thing, but they really do need that knowledge in order to equip their kids. So um, we've tried to make it accessible to them um, at you know for free at any time. If I'm remembering correctly, you all were on the cover of the magazine recently. I think it was you, Nancy Piercy, Hardy Ordway, Mary Jo Sharp, and Melissa Travis all together on a magazine, am I right? Um, no, actually, I wasn't in that one. That was just the women from uh, Houston Baptist University. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, but I'm so proud of them. I am mm -hmm. so excited. This is the first time that women apologists have been featured mm -hmm. um, in something like that. <laughs> so I'm just excited about the exposure it's going to bring to uh, women in the field. Yeah, it, it really does seem to be a male-dominated field a lot of times because I'm a member of the CAA as well, and I usually get surprised when I'm going through and I can say, oh, there, there's a woman in here saying something. <laughs> because, uh, it, I mean, I'm not trying to be against women saying it's just unusual. Yeah. Why do you think it's so unusual for women? Um, I think there's a couple reasons. I think the first reason is that there's kind of a stigma against it. Um, you know, even if you don't fully understand it, you feel like it's just not a place where you should be commenting. Um, the church has made it almost seem like the theological discussions are, are for men only and for mm -hmm. pastors. And 
Um, so it just, it just feels like you shouldn't be there. And then the second aspect I think is just, um, women are handling the running of the homes and the raising of the kids and, um, they're just doing so much that I think the lack of time is a huge issue. I mean, Mm -hmm. I rarely have time to enter discussions and, and get involved in debates and things like that just because I just don't literally don't have the time with my son and my work and everything else that I do. So I, I honestly think that it's a combination of, um, just feeling like you don't belong and then also just not having the time. And since you mentioned that having the time, I do believe also you spoke recently last October at the Women Equipping Women event, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's yeah. right because my wife was a part of that. You might remember that. She was in the audience. Mm-hmm. She wasn't a speaker. And it was one day I was pleased to see, or for two days, I was pleased to see you on the computer the whole day because... This conference, every woman could attend without leaving her home, right? Yes. Yeah, and I think that's huge because um, a lot of time, you know, even if women are interested in things like apologetics conferences, they rarely offer daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got women that may want to go with their husbands or even go if their husband's not interested. And, um, you know, unless their husband's, you know, really understanding and, and agrees to watch the kids for, you know, a whole day or two days or whatever it ends up being, um, you know, rarely can she attend. So I thought it was so great because it was completely online, but they got the experience of a face-to-face with an apologist mm-hmm. and and, um, you know, they got to learn. And, and like you said, they didn't have to leave their home. And, and now they can even access the lectures later if they want to and, and watch it at their leisure. So mm-hmm. um, I think that technology has really, really benefited um, women in this field um, just because they've made it more accessible and um, easier for them on their time. Do you know if it's a Women Equipping Women is going to be an annual event? Um, I know that, that Athenados Ministries um, does an annual online apologetics conference. Um, I know that that year it just happened to be that they were featuring women. Um, I would love to get something like that going. Um, we do have some women that, that are, you know, that specialize in kind of that area. So um, we've just been kind of tossing it around, but we don't know for sure if it's going to end up being another annual event. And what women are welcome to join the International Society of Women in Apologetics? Um, so we have a few different um, tiers of membership. Uh, the first tier is women who have a bachelor's degree in any field, or they have, um, t- I think it's 10 plus years of ministry experience. Um, and so they can join and then um, as a full member, which means that they have a chance to be on the speaking team, contribute articles, um, write blogs, that kind of thing, kind of get noticed as an apologist. Mm -hmm. And then um, the second tier is a student membership where we have students that are in the process of getting a degree of some sort or women who just want to learn more. Mm -hmm. And um, so that membership is, um, and it's all free. There doesn't cost anything to join. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have tiers just so that we can filter the content as needed. So the student members can um, send in uh, things that they want to publish or have us put on the website. Um, but typically it goes through an approval process um, where me and some of the other women will read it and make sure that it, the content's all, you know, doctrinally correct and, and um, you know, the, what it should be to be on the website. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious, do you often encounter stigmas against speaking at churches because, well, women aren't supposed to speak at churches, you know? <laughs> Yeah, um, I do definitely. I mean, obviously, I, I very rarely get asked to speak at churches. 
Um, I think what it really is is not that there's um, anybody against it. It's just that they just don't understand what apologetics is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the time they think that if they have a woman come speak that, that they're endorsing women in the pulpit or um, you know women being pastors or something like that. And really what they don't understand is that apologetics is a discipline that it would be like a special guest speaker type situation where um, the woman doesn't see herself as the shepherd of the church, you know, and the mm-hmm. church doesn't see her as their shepherd either. Um, but she's just there giving, you know, a special academic presentation on something. Um, and, you know, so very rarely do we get asked to speak in main church sessions or anything like that. But um, like, for example, right now, like I'm teaching an apologetics class at a church um, in their school of ministry. Um, but I think the reason that it, it's all good is because they see it more as an academic position rather than a um, spiritual leadership position. Mm-hmm. So um, I just think it's really just the church's not fully understanding that, you know, what apologetics is, what its purpose is. It's for training the church. It's for equipping the church. It's not um, for us to come in and try to be their shepherd or take over their pulpit. And Mm -hmm. so I think once that's kind of understood, I think it'll open up more opportunities for women. Yeah, I've I've encountered the same thing, I think, as a man that when you go to the pastor and you mention your interest in apologetics, I, I think a lot of times there's this hesitancy on part of the pastor, especially for someone like myself who's seminary trained, because honestly, I think a lot of pastors say, this guy could know more than I do, and mm-hmm. I went and I, I don't want to be outshined around here, and right. I, I've even read a blog post saying, pastor, I'm not interested in your pulpit, okay? I, I'd honestly hate to have your pulpit, but I'm interested in just equipping. I'm your ally. I'm not your threat. Uh, I think it just happens too often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very, very true. I mean, um, you know, a lot of pastors are seminary trained, but a lot of them aren't. Mm-hmm. And even if they are, very rarely do they focus in something like apologetics. Most mm-hmm. of the time they do biblical studies or pastoral leadership or something, and right. and they don't fully have that training. And, and I think that it's sad that, you know, pastors do feel threatened because, like you said, we're not after their pulpit. We just want to come alongside them and enhance their ministry and teach their, their congregants um, to go beyond on sitting in the pulpit and, you know, and actually put their faith into action. And, um, you know, so th- they see us as a threat, but really we just want to come alongside them and, and, and serve them and serve their congregation. Well, let's start talking some about the main reason we had you come on. And we're, we're beginning out the website later on, I'm sure, for the International Society of Women in Apologetics and such. Mm-hmm. But when we heard you speak at uh, New Orleans, one thing you said, I don't remember if you said during your presentation or afterwards, and it stuck out to us immediately, was you mentioned having a son with autism. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. My son, um, Lachlan, is seven years old, and he has um, high-functioning autism. He has ADD, speech delays, and um, anxiety. So uh, it's been, you know... It, he does have autism, high functioning autism, but with all the other things, it kind of um, makes his autism a little bit more severe than normal. Yeah, because for Allian, uh, both of our diagnoses would have been the same way. I mean, when I was first diagnosed, it was high functioning autism, and today that's usually called Asperger's. And mm-hmm. now I think they're trying to, to want to weave that out and to say it's just autism across the board, there's just different degrees. Right, autism. right. And I, I'm, is he your only son? Yes, he's my only son, and um, he is uh, enough for right now. 
Um, but I love him to death and, um, I just, you know, work really hard at, um, making sure that he has everything that he needs, that he's getting the, the help and the therapy and the education that he needs, um, right now. So, and no sisters either, right? No. (laughs) Now, when you were pregnant with him, did you know anything about him having this condition? No, I didn't. Actually, we we were asked if we wanted to um, see, uh, you know, do the amniocentesis uh, test and see if, um, you know, there were any disorders or anything like that. And we said no because I'm staunchly pro-life and I don't think that there would it would make a difference. You know, all it would do is cause me to worry throughout my entire pregnancy if I found out there was something wrong with my child mm-hmm. uh, or if he had a, you know, a disorder of some sort. I just, um, no matter what, I would choose life. So it yeah. didn't matter to me what he had, whatever mm-hmm. it was, we would get through it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and currently right now, the only test for autism is gender. Because they they think that um, you know boys have a higher aptitude for getting um, autism than girls do, mm-hmm. and so really the only test is gender selection. That if you find out you're having a boy, mm-hmm. and his chances of autism are higher than having a girl, then you can choose to um, you know abort and and you know try again and see if you'll get a girl this time and. I don't think that gender selection is a quality test for, you know, a preborn disorder. So for me, I felt like that was, you know, that's discrimination and, and they're doing it in Europe. And I just don't think that that's uh, morally right at all. When you said abort and try again, I can't help but think of Richard Dawkins and how he kind of started yes. a little flame war on Twitter when he said the same about a child born with Down syndrome. Yes. Is, that the kind of, is that what you were thinking about too? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, kids with Down syndrome, usually the, the rate of them being aborted is astronomically high when mm-hmm. people find out their child has Down syndrome. It, and it's such a shame. We have some really good friends. They just moved to Murder Beach, so they're kind of suffering over there, I'm sure. And they've got a little girl who's around three years old with Down syndrome, and she's just a joy to everyone mm-hmm. who gets to meet her. And that, that's what I find a lot about children with disabilities is yes parents can face extra hurdles and such but they can mm. also bring a unique joy that wasn't there before yes. mm-hmm. yeah i think that the kids that that have um, disorders like that you know they're so pure of heart mm-hmm. they're so innocent and my son he just he just loves and he just has no prejudice, no, you know, he just doesn't understand why people can be mean to other people or, you know, he was bullied for a while and he didn't even know how to react to that because he's just so gentle and just loves people. And, um, so yeah, so it's just, it's just crazy because they, all they want to do is just love people and just, um, you know, just be Jesus to people, and 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 I think that that's that's sad that that people don't appreciate that. I've I've heard this I heard it years ago, and I someday I'm going to look into it. But there was even a claim I've heard that some Native American tribes see a Down syndrome child as a special mark of divinity. Hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, I, I think that that's, you know, it's true. I mean, like, I don't think that God makes mistakes. Right. So, you know, obviously we have to deal with the, the fact that we have consequences of the fall and disease, mm-hmm. things like that. But yeah, I, I don't think God makes mistakes. I think that 
that people that are born with disabilities inspire us to be better as mm-hmm. a human race. And I think that that's, you know, that's purpose. And when we talk about the kind of quality of life that that's lived by people with disabilities, I mean, you saw Allie and I together, and uh, <laughs> although you didn't get to see us for a long time, I don't think you would have said, you have walked away saying, boy, I feel sorry for those two, the way they have to live their right. life. Right, right. Yeah, you know, like, they, they don't they don't have, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are people with more severe disorders, and so I mm-hmm. can't speak for everybody, but right. uh, most people with, with these disabilities, like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that they feel sorry for themselves, yeah. you know. I, I wrote a blog post yesterday, I'm not sure if you saw it, but it was asking a question of, do I suffer with Asperger's? Because I've uh, had people identify me in the introductions, like online and such, and I say, and Nick is, Peter is also suffers with Asperger's, and I made a post, and I said, and Peter says, no, no, I <laughs> have Asperger's. Yes, it makes it difficult for me times. Yes, there are hurdles to overcome, but suffer with it? No, that suffering is a choice. Yeah. And I choose to not suffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's, that's powerful. I yeah. think that, you know, we can, we can choose to be victims of our circumstances or we can choose to overcome it and use it to um, reach other people for Christ. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's a choice that we each have to make for sure. Yeah, now, did you know a lot about autism before Lachlan was born? <laughs> um, no, actually, I had done a college project on autism and um, I remember thinking when I was doing it, like, gosh, like, I don't, I don't know what I would do if I had a kid with autism. Like, that would be the most horrible thing on the planet. Like, you know, I can't imagine. And, um, and that was really my, the extent of my experience with it. And then. You always have to be careful saying things like that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but yeah, then, um, you know, he was born and, and we we didn't really notice. I mean, I didn't notice that it was there was anything wrong with him. He accelerated at a normal pace. Um, as a baby, he was very um, intelligent. He walked very quickly. He's very physically agile. So mm-hmm. I think that that um, kind of hid a little bit of his um, autistic delays. Um, but uh, then, you know, around a year and a half when when it was starting to be the point where he was supposed to be, um, you know, accelerating a little bit more and learning things at a different rate, um, it just wasn't happening. And so at that point, I decided that I needed to get him tested. Um, and then when he was three, he was officially diagnosed um, by the school district with autism. So now when in your study about autism, what did you find out about it? Um, really just the research is so, um, general in a lot of areas because like you were saying before, it's a wide spectrum Mm -hmm. with the levels of people with autism. And so you can read it and think, okay, well, um, you know, this one kid with autism has this. So, um, I wonder if my son's like that or if he's going to develop that or, or you Mm -hmm. read stories of people with autism that have written about what it's like to be inside their heads. And so you wonder if your kids are going through the same thing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, so doing the research is difficult because, um, you just never know at what level, you know, your child is, is dealing with stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you just, you just don't want to lump everybody into the same category. Um, and then try, you know, so the best thing I can do so far is, is what I've learned is, um, you know, there are certain things I can do to help alleviate stress on him. Like, um, for example, he's very sensitive to loud noise. 
Um, so making sure I don't put him in, in very stimulating environments, um, you know, because I took him to something recently where, um, it was a very stimulating environment, very loud and, and he like had a meltdown. And so, um, you know, just, just learning those things. I think a lot of, um, autism research, like I said, it's so general. So really, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is trial and error. You learn by raising them and you learn by experience really, um, what specifically, what triggers your child, what doesn't trigger them, what works best with them, what doesn't work best with them. And really it's a learning experience. Yeah. One of the rules is when you meet one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Right. Right. (laughs) When you talked about the loud noises thing, I was thinking that Allie has that kind of thing too better. When we were at a church event last year and they had a bunch of balloons set up we're now we're taking everything down, and you know what all the kids want to do with the balloons. Just right, pop, pop it. Pop, pop, <laughs> and Ari starts humor, and it, it starts making her just cringe. She covers her ears, and I was like, Hun, go wait outside. I'll take care of everything in here. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, for, for my part, I can be obsessively scared of a lot of things. If uh, she wants me, for instance, to take a... Uh, paper plate that suppose that she's had her breakfast on says can you focus away from me and it's got a single crumb on it i'm taking it to the trash can like i'm handling radioactive material <laughs> or something because i cannot stand it if she gets me in water she can do a lot more with me in water than anyone else has but i'm utterly terrified of going underwater or anything like that and i've said before that when she was trying to get me to walk across a pool with her one time, even staying close to the edge. Three times I asked her if she'd taken out a life insurance policy <laughs> on me lately. And when it comes to climbing steps sometimes, you know, that can be just as hard. So, yeah, we, we when we're on the spectrum, we have these things. And mm-hmm. it's, it's also true about how different we are. That See, my wife and I started something with a connection group at our church. That's not the... Uh, 40 Days of Love, mm-hmm. and Rick Warren, who leads, who led it originally, he was talking about how different he and his wife are, I said, yeah, and you and I are like that, we're vastly different, because a lot of people on the spectrum, they get the intellectual heightened mm-hmm. and such, and for me, that's me, I'm the book geek in the family, I'm the one who, who's a, Sheldon Cooper is my role model in the area, <laughs> and her, she is much more emotionally oriented. She, she's mm-hmm. got the intellect in the areas of art and animals, for instance, but she she feels as strongly as I think. And that can make some very interesting dynamics because <laughs> when we're disagreeing, she's talking about her feelings, and I'm talking about here are the facts, and then you add in a natural tendency, a man wants to just fix things, and <laughs> we have to learn to adapt. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I think it's one of the things that's interesting is is one of the reasons autism research does help is that there are similar things that that people with autism deal with. Like for example, you were talking about your fears and water, and, and my son, our biggest struggle is that he just some days he's totally fine with taking a bath or a shower, and then other days it's like. 
I'm burning him with hot acid. Um, and so it, it's crazy because, um, you know, a lot of our, our biggest issues come from when he's afraid to do something and I have to, um, you know, intervene and force him to do it because it's something that people do. You have to take a bath, you have to get clean. Yeah. And um, so some of our biggest battles and our biggest issues are over the fact that he's afraid of things like that, like water and, mm -hmm. and like you were talking about taking the plate to the trash. He will not touch the trash can. He will not throw things away. He, mm -hmm. every time I ask him to do it, he, he, you know, cringes and says like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want, you know? And, and so it's so funny because like, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people with autism, like do have some of those similar fears. So I, I think that that's where research comes in handy because then you can kind of be aware that that might be an issue for your child. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and kind of be ready for it. Um, but you really never know until you try to make them do something or ask them to do something and then find out that they will refuse or they don't want to or something like that. And so, um, yeah, so Lachlan has, you know, a lot of those same struggles. We've got a trash can where you step on something on the bottom and the lid pops open automatically. <laughs> as soon as I saw this when we were making our wedding plans for things we wanted around the house and I show me this. I said, "Now, hon, this is the kind of thinking we need to be doing." <laughs> but it's, uh, any, my mother even brought over another trash can because she lives next door for us to use to hold recycler bars. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I, I don't do it because I'm not opening up the lid. At all. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll put everything in a bag and give it to her later on. But no, I don't. I don't touch things. But I don't want to get my hands icky or anything like that. And when it comes to the water thing, I mean. I'm not sure if it's any comfort, but it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I actually got to the point where I could actually wash my wash my face in the shower. That's how <laughs> scared I am of that water. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I and I think that, you know, as, as you know, for me as a mom who doesn't have a, a disorder like that, um, really, I'm just trying to... Um, I want to be sensitive to the fact that these are real, real fears and, and things for him. But I also want to push him and challenge him to um, try to overcome some of those because I do want him to be independent someday. I do want him to be able to um, do these things without um, fear and without anxiety because I might not always be there to to force him or to help him through it. And so, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's great to know that there are people that, once they hit a certain point, you know, they're, they've kind of overcome it a little bit and they're able to, you know, deal with it on their own. Yeah. You know, when, when I had a friend who's going, he's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks, in fact, and I'm thinking this you'd probably like as well. And he and I went to Bible college together and he told me about seminary and getting a, getting studies in apologetics fair because he saw my great interest. And so we've been friends for a long time, and then he calls me, <clears throat> or messaged me, I remember which one, a few years ago, and said, hey, yeah, we just found out our son Timothy has Asperger's. What do you, what do you recommend? And and he said he asked several people, and I'm trying to not toot my own horn, I say, but he said, the advice I gave him was the best. And I said, mm -hmm. at this point, first thing, you bow down and you give thanks to God right now. Because you are, you have been given a gift. You are going to get to see the world with a whole new set of eyes that you would never have seen it through before. Mm -hmm. And you are opening up to a whole new way of thinking that you never got to yeah. experience before. It's, I mean, that's so true. <laughs> I mean, really, like, 
things that I don't think are a big deal or things that I don't notice, like he notices everything. Mm. And it's crazy because it's just like you can go through life without realizing, you know, different things around you or being sensitive to other people around you. But, um, you know, Lachlan's taught me so much in that area. You know, he's he's really just he sees beauty where I don't even notice, you know, and and he He's just, I mean, there, you know, yes, it's hard. There are days where it's really hard, but then there are other days where I'm like, I can't imagine my life any different. Yeah. And when you talk about observing everything, I was kind of wondering, did you ever watch a show called Monk? No, I didn't. I've heard of it, though. I know what the premise is, but yeah, um, yeah I've never actually watched it. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, Monk is the name of a main character, and he's a detective with extreme obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm -hmm which means he's terrified of everything, although somehow he can look at dead bodies at a crime scene. <laughs> and that, that somebody talked about on the show, it, it just doesn't make sense, but because he notices and he remembers everything, he's the one who can piece together the crime every single time, and my parents so wanted me to watch the show with him, I finally gave in and loved it, because he said, this guy's just like you, and we want to see if you can solve a crime before he does. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I could. Yeah, I mean, I think that even um, shows like like Sherlock, for example, I'm a huge fan of Sherlock on BBC, and um, you know, it's not said that Sherlock has any of these disorders, but really, you can tell that he's got some something, and and you can't tell exactly what it is, but he has this heightened sense where same thing, he notices everything, but he's socially awkward and he has a hard time connecting to people, and so um, I think it's interesting that that you see. The, um, the brilliance highlighted, like you were saying, like my son is brilliant, but then, you know, when it comes to interacting with other people or, or something like that, the very simple things you would think it's very hard for him. And so, um, but I'm, I'm glad that there are people like that on TV because, you know, we are all different and we all have different strengths and, and there are beautiful things about each one of us. And I, and I think it's important for, um, you know, kids like Lachlan to have those role models. And so, yeah, I'm glad that those things are on TV for sure. Yeah. And another example of someone like that, the show's creators keep saying he's now a spectrum and such, but most of us watching think otherwise. That'd be Sheldon Cooper on the Big Bang yes. Theory. Like, yeah, I interviewed Hugh Ross last year, and mm -hmm. he said, people ask me about that show all the time, and they say, <laughs> oh, you are really as geeky and nerdy as the people on that show are, and he uh -huh. says, actually, I tell them, they had to tone it down a lot, because yeah. we're even geekier and nerdier than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that show. I watch it all the time and, and I do see um watching Sheldon and, mm -hmm. and just kind of the way that he reacts to his friends and interacts with them. It's it's you know, you, you can tell that, that he probably um his character does have some of those yeah. things and, and you know, but it he doesn't let it stop him from achieving greatness, you know. And uh, another one I would like to bring up about definitely not an Aspie as far as I know was that my favorite series that I, I watched religiously was Smallville. Oh, yeah. <laughs> memorized everything about the show and such. And John Schneider, who played Jonathan Kent, who's actually a Christian, yeah, did say that uh, raising Clark on the show, he said, it's like raising a special needs child. Mm. And when I'd see it, I, I would also see a lot myself because Clark's a boy in there who's different from everyone else, has a hard time fitting in, and yet 
always wants to go out and do the right thing, even if it costs him in the end. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, one of the parts of of my book that I, I'm doing a chapter on superheroes and um, you know, one of those one of the qualities of superheroes is that, you know, they they do have some of their own challenges, but they they ultimately put themselves aside and want what's best for everybody else and, and that way they're like Jesus. Yeah. And then I think that you look at little kids with special needs and they're innocent and Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. You know, you have to have faith like a child and I think that that those things really I think that sometimes when kids are different it allows them to really tap into that that pure of heart and that um you know kindness and genuine um you know because they they that's all they've got you know and and so they they tap into that and it's amazing I'm kind of curious since we were at New Orleans together that if you're writing something on superheroes did you consult Ryan Putman about Superman any um, no, we didn't talk, but I do know that he, he does some of that. So um, I have a list of people that I need yeah. to still yeah. talk to. We, we got to see his office. It is, <laughs> it's a Superman collection side. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Now, let's uh, start talking some more here about Lock. Now, you were pretty much saying, like, you know, out of the womb and the first year, everything seems pretty normal, right? Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> But you did say he seemed, in fact, more accelerated, right? Yeah, yeah. He he was very um, in the first year. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he started walking at nine months. He was very, very accelerated physically. He was very um, quick to learn those types of things. I mean, he was crawling out of his bed at very early age. We had to move him up to a different bed. Um, he's just extremely curious. So he wanted to get up and explore the world and. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was very accelerated and then around a year and a half was when, um, you know, they're supposed to be talking a lot and they're supposed to be, um, you know, recognizing things and pointing at things and saying, oh, this is a duck, this is a cow, um, you know, that kind of, and he wasn't doing that and he hadn't even said the word mommy yet or mom. Um, and so, um, I just kind of noticed that trying to teach him things, it wasn't computing. There was something about our connection that when I tried to talk to him or it would just go right past him or he wouldn't be able to concentrate or pay attention. And I remember sitting in my living room one day and having him sitting on the couch and I had been, I had made these special flashcards, um, just trying to go through and teach him these things. And, um, I remember sitting there one day and just like breaking down crying and saying, you know, Lord, like, I don't understand. Like, I want to meet my son. Where is his personality? Where is he? Mm-hmm. And I remember just feeling like I was like those moms I read about where your child is locked in his mind mm-hmm. and there was no way of breaking through that, that barrier. Like I had, I was so ill-equipped. I didn't understand what what he was thinking. I didn't know how to break through. And so I remember just constantly praying and praying and praying like, Lord, like, please, like, help. Like, just, you know, I want to know my child. And um, I remember uh, I finally found out about that the county was offering um, some free services for speech therapy. So I contacted them. But um, if you don't know anything about California, uh, if it's run by the government or the Department of Education, it takes forever for them to do anything. I don't think and... that's just California. <laughs> okay, so yeah, maybe it's a nationwide thing. But, um, you know, it took them a year and a half to get somebody to come to the house and work with us. And I remember thinking, like, 
gosh, like, you know, I can't find any help anywhere. And so I remember that first, you know, or that second year and a half of his life, it was, it was so hard. And I just was trying to do everything I possibly could to, um, break him out of his shell and try to figure out, you know, how he could talk. And, um, it was crazy because about a month after he started speech therapy, he was around, um, almost three years old. Um, all of a sudden one day he just, you know, said mommy. And I was like, just so shocked a friend of mine was holding him and she pointed at me and she said who's that and he's like mommy and I remember I almost fell over because I was so um you know having your child not say the word mommy until they're three is mm-hmm. is it's really hard and so um I remember that was like the first sign of hope and then um after having him in school they actually start them at school at three if they have special needs in california so um he he was in school immediately they did the testing they found out that he did indeed have you know certain levels of autism and different things and they um started him in speech therapy immediately and he out of nowhere just all of a sudden started talking <laughs> mm-hmm. um i think that it was really a combination of him finally being ready and then also um people who had the skills and understood how to teach kids um, with those disorders. Uh, I, I didn't know that. I, I had never gone to school for anything like that. So I was out of my depth. Um, and and I was so grateful that God finally brought people who, who could really open that world up to him. Yeah, I'm going to be speaking from my perspective here as one who is on the spectrum here is that when you talk about being caught in your own world, yes, yes, that happens entirely. Mm-hmm. All of us, I think, as fallen human beings, tend to look to ourselves first. But mm-hmm. I suspect it's augmented greatly when you're on the spectrum. Mm. Because usually things are, you're kind of thinking, how does this relate to me? And if it's a conversation, you want to turn it towards something that's easy for you to talk about. And it's very easy to personalize every single thing that happens. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true too. I mean, like with with my son, like if I am upset about something or or I get mad about something, it might not have anything to do with him, but he'll take it personally. Yeah. And and I think I have to be so aware, he's so sensitive, mm-hmm. but I have to be super aware that I can't um put more burden on him than than he can handle because he'll make like you're saying he'll make everything about him and and then i'm like oh i I can't even deal with the actual situation because now i'm having to diffuse you know him feeling bad you know excuse me about it and so yeah i fully understand that yeah people on the spectrum really are a lot more sensitive than a lot of people realize and on am i feared if I'm out there and I'm arguing with atheists, I can take bullets from them all day long. They call me idiot, moron, stupid, brainwashed, indoctrinated. You know all those things. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, water off my back. Okay, no big deal. I'm tougher than that. But if yeah. someone I care about says something really negative, I, I can be about to absolutely break down at that yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, um, you know, for me, just uh, being an apologist, obviously, I get attacked on Twitter and, and people email me all the time and, and you know, say things and, and you know, and I, it, for myself, it hurts me. I had a self-esteem issue growing up. So for me, it's, it's, uh, it's hard, but I can't even imagine like, um, 
you know, just dealing with that and then also having something else. And, um, you know, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that, it, you know, you're able to just walk away from that and it not bother you. But I definitely understand having someone close to you. Um, because yeah, Lachlan, the second that he finds out that someone he loves, um, may be upset with him or made him feel bad or something like that. It, it's a lot worse for sure. Yeah, I, I can say on my end that it used to bother me a whole, whole lot. Mm. And I've told people the thing that changed it for me. And unfortunately, this is a few years away for Lachlan mm-hmm. getting married. You know, <laughs> he, he, he's away is away from there. Yeah, forever, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. But for me, it was that, you know, when you're on the spectrum, you're in a project, you pretty much uh, place your whole identity there. So if someone says something negative to you, your very identity has been called into question. At this point, and now I've got Audi with me, and she is the one that affirms and validates me and builds me up. And I say, because of that, I'm able to go out and do what I do without fear. Because I know when I get home in the evening and such, proverbially, she's right there taking care of me. And I think the message you can get is that people on the spectrum. We really need a lot of validation, and we need it repeatedly. You can't—it yes. can't just be a. In fact, this is something that applies to everyone. To some of you, we can't just assume people know what we think and feel about them. Yeah. Even if they do, they still need to hear it. I know my wife loves me, but if I go through the day without hearing her say it, that's going to devastate my day. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. That's you know, I've noticed that when when I'm um, able to give him more time or really building him up, I notice he does a lot better mm-hmm. than when I'm busy or um, you know, he, he we haven't spent a lot of time together recently. He has a hard time with that. So um, that's that's for sure. I I hundred percent agree with that. Yeah, when. Uh... You were talking also, you said that he was accelerating intellectually. Now, he wasn't speaking, but how did you know he was accelerating intellectually? Um, I could just, he, <laughs> he just was able to, um, he, I don't know. And really, I didn't, I didn't realize it um, until I really noticed after he started speaking, it was almost like he had had everything inside already. He just couldn't vocalize it. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know until, um, like I said, he was accelerating physically because he would climb on everything and, and had no fear. And, and that's actually another thing is that he has no fear. And I think that um, as far as um, getting into like going up high or, or um, getting himself into physical situations. Um, but as far as, um, you know, I didn't really know that he was accelerating intellectually until he started speaking. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh yeah, I had all this inside of me. I was thinking through it all. I just couldn't vocalize it. And so then it was like all of a sudden this barrage of information and knowledge came out um, once he was able to vocalize it. And so I realized that he had actually been retaining a lot more than I had assumed uh, he was. So yeah, it was really when he started talking that I found out that he had been accelerating intellectually before he could even speak. Yeah, something, um, again, from my experience on the spectrum, is that there can be many times Allie and I get into a disagreement, and, same, and one of us eventually just says, I don't know what to say. Because it's not like, oh, I've said everything, there's nothing more left. It's, there's a point to make, and it's like, I don't know how to respond to this. I don't know what to say, because the thing I'm usually is, if you just can't say the right 
perfect thing, then you shouldn't say anything at all. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I think that, um, now he doesn't stop talking he just yeah. all the time, mm-hmm. but, um, I think that, he, you know, it's, it's so true that a lot of times like he, he doesn't know how to say something and I'll keep probing him and I'll say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, can you explain it in a different way? Or, or I'll, I'll ask him, I'll try to prompt him and, and throw out suggestions for how he wants to describe something. Mm-hmm. And, um, eventually sometimes he just says, you know, forget it. I, I can't, um, explain it to you right now. Um, and so, uh, sometimes actually what I've learned, um, that helps us particularly is if he can't explain it to me, I ask him to draw me a picture mm-hmm. and I say, you know, draw me a picture of what you're, what you're trying to say to me. And then I will help you find the words for how to describe it. And so I think that drawing my son is, is just loves to draw. Yeah. And I think that that has really helped us connect because he's able to put his feelings into pictures that he can't explain verbally. Yeah. I always be artist around here and I always encourage that. When you were talking about probing, it, it occurred to me that something that, at least for me on Spectrum, I find is that we tend to not really trust people. Right. As it were. We, we view people with suspicion, and sometimes we don't speak immediately because, in some ways, we want people to probe because mm-hmm. the people who really care about us are going to be the ones that ask for questions of us and probe. Right. And something Ali and I have said before is that it's very hard to get on good terms with us but if you get on really really good terms with us we are as loyal as dogs to you mm. we'll crawl through fire and that's what makes it all the harder when something happens that seems to say our trust was not well placed it's very difficult to learn how to deal with that Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. And I think Lachlan, he's the same way. You know, if he becomes friends with somebody or or somebody hurts him that's close to him, he, he views them with suspicion for a very long yeah. time and doesn't want to be around them. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's very hard to rebuild that trust for sure. Yeah. Uh, sadly, we are very good at bearing grudges on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're talking about the different levels of development. Again, um, I actually had to be in speech therapy for a while, too, in that uh, I'm told that when I was in kindergarten and starting off and such, that it was practically I was speaking my own language, and there had to be other people there to translate what I was saying. Mm. Now today, that pretty much only applies to my handwriting, which has... (laughs) The best man who toasts me at my wedding said it requires the gift and power of God to translate. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I have and I was in speech therapy for a long time and today I can still struggle with the R sound and the TH sound. And, with, and there, there was an amusing aspect of this that uh, when I was preparing going to Bible college for ministry, the people who were, since I went through vocal rehab to pay for it due to my disability, and they were looking at me saying, you don't need to go into this field. You should be considered doing something like engineer or something because, I mean, this field, we, we just don't think you're going to be able to handle public speaking like this. Mm. <laughs> and I, I tell people, yeah, that's what they told me. It's too bad they weren't there when I gave a senior sermon to my entire student body at the college I graduated from, which would have consisted, when you include professors, of probably about 1,000 people, and I had no trouble whatsoever doing it. 
Yeah. 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 And, you know, and that's, um, that's the thing is I think that a lot of times we can try to limit people with disabilities and say, you can't do that or you're not going to be able to do this. And, mm-hmm. and really like, um, you know, for a long time, I thought there was no way Lachlan was going to ever be able to, um, be in a field where he would have to talk. I was like, there, he's not going to be able to do that. And now when, you know, he's been in speech therapy for four years straight, well, four and a half now, he, um, I mean, he can give a encyclopedic, uh, you know, story on dinosaurs or, um, I mean, he remembers every single fact and it's amazing because, you know, he could be, he could be anything. He, his fixations are dinosaurs and animals and he can tell you the diet, the habitat, the weight, the size, the speed, the, um, the era, the, I mean, it's amazing the things that he can tell you about these, um, animals or dinosaurs or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. And it's like, uh, he's going to have no, tr- no trouble at all, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. going around and, and telling people about things. And, um, you know, and it's just been great to be able to see that, you know, now as he's getting older. We're at around the halfway point here on our show. I'd like to remind everyone that, yes, this is the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, who is on the spectrum also of Asperger's. My guest is Sarah Enkenman, talking about her son, Lachlan, who is also on the spectrum. But if you're here next week, we've got another show, Autism Theme, where you're going to have my friend Stephen Bedard coming on, and I'm sure Sarah knows as well. Mm-hmm. And he's going to be talking about a little booklet he's written, it's an incredibly short one. You could read it in half an hour, but it's a very good one about how to make your church more autism friendly. He's mm-hmm. got two children who are, are very much on the spectrum. We're going to be talking about that too, but we're going to be asking what can the church do to help people on the spectrum? Mm-hmm. You know, to get back to what you were saying here, I, I, I can relate again to my own experience here. My parents tell me, for instance, that I was reading when I was one year old, and I was pretty much self-taught, and believe it or not, the first book I was reading was the Bible. (laughs) That's so cool. There was a a story that my dad sat me in front of a computer, and they'd had me, they'd see me going over the Bible, wondering, is this stuff really sinking in on that? And he sat me in front of a computer store. He went to play some sort of video game. Now, if things haven't changed, his video games don't last too long. <laughs> and when he came back, there was a small crowd around the computer. And we asked him, Did, is, and they, there on the screen was all the books of the Bible in their correct order, spelled properly, and with how many chapters they had. And said, uh, did, did he do this? And he said, this is your son, right? Yeah, did he, did he do this? I don't know. Cleared it. He said, okay, Nick, do it again. Did it again. Wow. And, and yeah, that's kind of our, that's the kind of thing they were looking and saying, there is something different. Now, my diagnosis didn't come until I was in the fifth grade. Mm. But, yeah, when we're on the spectrum, we can get very much intellectually involved in a subject and today I, that's something I think for instance gives me an edge in some ways in apologetics because I just get obsessed with it and remember mm. so so much about it. and yet talking with uh, people at the connection group that we're at with our church you said yeah but, but the danger is on the spectrum since you're not very relational is that everything can become intellectual 
Right. That that means you're relationalizing. For instance, prayer for me is exceptionally difficult because like, what do you do? How do you say this? Because it's a relationship. It doesn't make yeah. sense. Yeah. Um. I think you know. <laughs> actually, I think that that's something that that apologists in general yeah. have to have to deal with because people that get into apologetics, we're we're very much in our heads. I mean, we're. Very, I mean, I'm for myself. I'm I'm a huge introvert. And uh, I have a hard time with social things. Um, you know, I've learned for work and, and, you know, just having to live in this world that I've had to learn how to be social. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, given the preference, I would prefer not to. Right. And it, but it has nothing to do with how much I love people. It's like mm-hmm. you can you can love people. And, and, you know, I do. I just I have a huge heart for the lost and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for everybody. But, you know, sometimes when you. Um, you know, have uh, either a disorder or you lean towards introversion or something, um, you can prefer to be in your head a lot and, and be alone. Or um, And I think that that's the hard thing is I think what ends up happening is those types of people lean towards disciplines like apologetics. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's maybe why, um, you know, there's been a, a hard sell for apologetics in the church because people say, oh, you're too intellectual. There's no relational aspect to it. Um, but I do know that we are, you know, we're working very hard to, you know, all the time to make it more relational and, and, and try to get out of our heads and, and, you know, really make it about people, which is what it's about. And, um, so I think that that's, you know, just, um, a general (laughs) apologist struggle for sure. When you were talking about the care of mankind and being an introvert and being in your own head and such as about yesterday, we were at the mall, which is (laughs) actually where our meeting was held. And I was having to go somewhere by myself, so I'm walking, trying to make it through this crowd of people, and people are moving slowly in front of me, which, at my speed, everyone moves slower than I do a lot of times. <laughs> and, I, and I just thought, had popped in my head the line from Linus Van Pelt in the Peanuts comics, where he said, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, um, you know, I think that that's a struggle for all of us that that tend to be more on the academic or intellectual side. It's just we we find um, peace in in you know intellect and and learning new things and and you know kind of seeing how everything fits together and, and seeing how theories work and um, you know and I think that it's it's really not. Um, you know, a, a intentional thing that we do. And I think it's really just that we find comfort in those things. And, and so it's hard for us to relate on a different level. And, um, you know, and, and so it's really not done intentionally. It's just kind of where, how we lean <laughs> naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, when we were talking about, uh, I mentioned Stephen Bedard coming on next week. Uh, yeah. How does your church deal with, what you're dealing with. I mean, does Lachlan have a hard time at church? Um, so it depends. Um, it can go back and forth. Like the church that I go to now actually has a special needs, um, children's ministry class in the third service. So that's really awesome. Um, Lachlan's been in school since he was three years old. So 
he and he's been at church, you know, every Sunday. So he's actually used to the environment now in the sense that he knows what's to ex- what's expected of him. He knows what to expect. Um, he he has an easier time now for sure. Um, just because of the school environment that he's had to deal with, he's learned how to, how to kind of function. Um, but, uh, yeah, but the church that I go to does have a special needs children's ministry class. Um, and then, uh, you know, but the hard thing is I think that when churches aren't aware, um, cause you know, kids with, with, with disorders like autism, they don't like, you, you can't see it. It's right. not you can see. So they'll expect a level of work that maybe they're not ready for. And mm. so example, like we were at a church um, when we lived in Texas and um, all the other kids, what they had to do was recite the memory verse um, for candy or for a reward or something like that. And Lachlan couldn't do it. And um, they, you know, and it was hard for him because all the other kids were getting their rewards for doing the verse and he couldn't do it. And so he felt bad about himself. And so he was bawling by the time I picked him up. And, um, you know, and they just didn't know what to do with it. They, were, they thought he was just being bad and, and not listening and not obeying. And they didn't understand at all. And so he had a horrible experience at that church and never wanted to go back. And, um, you know, and so I think it's hard when people aren't aware that there are disorders that you can't see. And they, you know, don't realize after a certain point they need to stop pushing because maybe a kid literally cannot perform the the level that they want them to. And, um, you know, and it's really hard, especially when you've got reward-based things because, um, like, for example, even if Lachlan was given candy, he couldn't eat it. He doesn't eat sugar because of his ADD. And so um, a lot of times, like, what they'll do is they'll reward kids with things like candy at church. And it's like, well, what about kids who can't eat sugar? How do you deal with that? And so um, I think a lot of times they get overlooked um, as far as the needs that they have. And I think that churches could do a better job of, you know, thinking about what their reward systems are for kids and um, maybe doing something that's not food based. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, and also maybe realizing that um, not every kid is going to perform at the level you expect and you need to be ready for that. Yeah, Allie and I have actually got to give presentations at at least one church before on what it's like being on the spectrum, <laughs> which was a good experience to have. But let me say this. For instance, at our current church, we've got a really good friend there, and he's in a wheelchair. Mm. Now, no one's going to go up to this guy, hopefully no one would, and say, hey, would you like to have a race and let's see who wins? You'd be an absolute jerk if you did that because right. you can look and say, this guy can't run. You don't say something like that. But when Ari and I walk in, I mean, if you just look at us, you're not going to look and say, hmm, there are a couple of people with Asperger's. I mean, if you watch our behavior, you might think something. Right. But just looking at us, you can't see it. It's an invisible condition. But the thing is, just by looking, people assume you're normal. And I've, I've been there to hear people make remarks when I'm leaving because I'm quiet and I can tell they're very negative and they they have a strange idea that because I'm 10 feet away I can't hear them yeah I hear everything you're saying right now okay Mm. yeah I mean I think that that you know it's it's hard because just people just if they can't see something clearly they don't they just have no um no sense of sensitivity to, you know, to just maybe figure that 
um, just because you can't see something, it's not there. Or um, I know that like there's this quote that I really love and it's um, be kind because everyone is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's so true. I think that we need to always assume just, we just need to always err on the side of caution. We always need to go above and beyond. And I think that's one thing that the church struggles with. I mean, um, you know, as a single parent, you know, I go to church and I sit by myself and um, very rarely do people reach out and say hello or, or try to get to know me or anything like that. And so I think that the church in general has a hard time Mm -hmm. getting out of themselves and um, reaching out to people regardless of, um, what they may look like or something like that, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's a general struggle of the church, I think, for sure. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of an odd thing because we want people at the church to get to know us. At the same time, it can be very awkward for me when we have a time, for instance, that's meet and greet where you have to oh, I and shake hands with everyone around you and such. I mean, the only, the only part that I really care about is I just turn towards Allie and say, now remember, you're supposed to greet one another with a holy kiss here. And then, <laughs> Saying, okay, d- did I greet you yet? Yes, yes, you did. Okay, should I greet you again? No, you don't need to. <laughs> but, but we we have fortunately reached a point where we do have several good friends at our church. We spent Easter Sunday with a couple that invited us over. They At the end of January, they invited us over for some football game. I was really into it. I think it was some big event going on. I, I don't know. I was reading my book the whole time, pretty much. But we, we've got friends there and it's really unique because we weren't going out of our way and just trying to make friends but we just started going to these connection groups and in a smaller controlled setting I think it was easier to meet with people yes yes yeah I think one of the things that is hard um is a lot of times they'll have um like even just speaking from a single parent perspective um they have groups they offer groups but then they'll have like um, they'll only have childcare for the married group right. or, you know, and then when they have the singles group, there's no childcare because they assume you don't have kids if you're single. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think that it's hard because like, for example, I haven't found a small group that accommodates all of my needs and I can't, mm-hmm. and literally I don't have the time to go if I don't have a sitter and I can't afford a sitter all the time. And so I think that, um, there's a lot of, um, situations that, you know, it's hard. You can't serve everybody all the time, but I think that there are, you know, the way that the world is changing and, and the fact that the autism diagnoses are going up and, um, you know, you've got a lot more single parents. I really think the church needs to do a better job of adjusting to culture and learning how to meet those needs for sure. Yeah. As uh, you were saying this, I know it's not the theme of what we're talking about today, but I do have a good friend and she also lives in California in fact, and she's a widow with some children, and what you're saying about does remind something she tells me that the church sadly seems to look down on single people as if mm-hmm. there was something wrong with you if you're single. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that it's true. I mean, they're, you know, they're like, well, why can't you just find someone and get married? And it's like, well, if you're a strong Christian, then you can't settle. You can't just marry the next person that asks you out. You have to really be um, picky. You have to, to say, okay, is this person going to lead me? Is this person, you know, and so I think it's hard because, um, you know, and, and especially if you're, you know, you're widowed or you went through a particularly hard divorce, you've got 
um, pain and, and you have trust issues. And mm -hmm. so you don't want to invest so much <laughs> into something again once you've already been hurt. Um, and, and so I think that, um, yeah, the church definitely looks at you like there's something wrong with you. Like, why can't you just find somebody, you know, and it's, it's not that easy <laughs> for and, everybody. And there are some people who quite frankly, not because they're opposed to the institution or anything, they just don't want to get married and that's fine right. if they don't want to. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that people, some people don't, I mean, they, they have goals in life and they, they want certain things and, and they're not, you know, they're like, they're not willing to settle down and, and that's fine. Like, that's their prerogative. If they yeah. feel called to that, then that's fine, you know. Now, when you're talking about the way the church is and getting to, you know, when we were looking for our churches, we were trying to find the one that we attended. Now, we were trying to find something for both of us. Right. I really wanted something with contemporary worship involved. That's what she likes. But for me, I was saying, hun, that's good, but I need something that's going to supply me. As well, because frankly, I go to most churches and I'm sitting there and think, heard this so many times before. Yes. I wonder what, I, wonder what I'm going to have for lunch. Should <laughs> I play, what Final Fantasy game should I play when I get home from church today? I mean, those are the kinds of things. I, I'm just, I hate to say, I get bored in church when mm -hmm. that happens. But yeah. we, we found a church and now you have good contemporary worship and they're very intellectually oriented. And they've even got this awesome idea where before the service starts, they have a number come up and it says, if you have any questions during the service, text in your question to this number and our pastor will come out at the end and address your question. And mm -hmm. I, so I was like, oh my gosh, wow. And I mean, this is a church, they, they let me write the curriculum for them and pretty soon I'm going to be teaching a four week course on the historical Jesus, but the pastor is okay. I mean, this is exactly what I was looking for, and Allie and I can go to a sermon, and we both get something out of it. And I say, yeah, it, it's very hard to find a church that feeds someone who's really intellectually driven in this area. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, <laughs> that's kind of been a struggle for me. I was very blessed to grow up in churches where. Um, I felt like I was learning every week and, and, you know, my, I am very much, you know, verse by verse, um, you know, ripping apart the, the chapter and, and digging deep into what is this Greek word. And, um, you know, and I was very, very blessed in that way growing up and, and my dad's very intellectual in that area as well. And so, um, you know, for me as an adult, especially now, since I do this, um, you know, as a career, um, it, it, it got harder as an adult to find a church that, um, taught me something and, and, you know, and, and the church I'm at now, I learn something new every week and I get convicted and I am just blessed and their, the preaching is just amazing. And, um, I, I just love my church now because of that. Um, because I do feel like even if I don't learn something new intellectually, I'm convicted in some way I'm reached on a, another level too. Um, and I think that that's, um, you know, that's a really powerful thing. And so, yeah. 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 I think this is something really important because, I mean, not everyone on the spectrum is like this, but a lot of people on the spectrum are very intellectually oriented. And mm -hmm. if you come in and you start saying things that we usually hear about Christianity is about a relationship with God, or you start pointing to relational aspects, you are going to lose a lot of people who are on the spectrum. Mm. And they're, they're, 
There are supposedly a lot of them on the spectrum who are atheists and agnostics, and I think it could be because they do see Christianity as more touchy-feely and relational-oriented, instead yeah. of really seeing it as an intellectually viable worldview. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I, you know, just being in, you know, apologetics myself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that that's something that, you know, is definitely hard because when they talk about, oh, it's about a relationship, well, my way of relating with God is the more that I learn about him, the more that I love him, the more I want to serve him, and the more um, really intellectually learning about him is is my way of, of relating to him Absolutely. and understanding him. And, mm-hmm. and um, I know that I'm limited and finite, and I'll never fully understand things like the Trinity or the hypostatic union or whatever, mm-hmm. but... You know, I do. I do feel like the more that I learn, um, the more I love him, and the more that I learn about the crucifixion, the resurrection, and those things, the more that I appreciate the sacrifice that Jesus made for me. And so, um, I may not always have that touchy feeliness, but the fact that I can, um, that God d- did give us a logical worldview, the fact that it's logical and it sits right with my intellect, and it fe- it feels like truth. That that helps me. Um, that strengthens my own faith, and that helps me. Um, that helps me relate to God. And so I think that. Um, I think that that relation to God is is downplayed in a lot of churches. Well, before we continue, that, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast here, and this podcast it's delivered to you free. I do it free of charge, but things aren't exactly free around here. Having a ministry, you have expenses, <clears throat> which Sarah knows where also. <laughs> and we need support from people like you. We need to know that you're looking at what we do and saying, this matters. I want to support this. I want more of this. I mean, just like when we were talking a while ago about people on spectrum, like, you can't assume that we know these things. Yeah, it, it touches me so much when I hear people talking about the show and how much they appreciate the show and leaving positive reviews and things of that sort, but that's suppose you want to do more, and I encourage you to please consider it. Mm. What you do is you go to our page at deeperwaters.ddns.net, and there's a section on the left on the sidebar where it says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now, you click the link there, and you get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus, the Ministry of Mike Lacona. Okay, have you gone to the right spot? I mean, isn't this deeper waters? Yes, you've gone to the right spot. And you make your donation there, and then you contact me, or you contact Debbie Lacona, Mike's wife. And if you don't do this, it won't happen. And you say, hey, Nick, I just uh, made a donation to you through uh, Risen Jesus. Uh, Can you uh, make sure that Debbie knows about this so that you can get the donation? And sure do that. And we will get every penny and it will be tax deductible that way and if you can set yourself up to be a monthly donor that's the bread and butter of what we do and we really need you and when you do that it's saying hey nick i love the show i love what you're doing i think it's awesome and i want you to keep going here's my support now there are other things you can do you can buy books on our amazon store we've got a link there as well, but there's still some more work to do on that one. I sadly tend to procrastinate a bit. And uh, then also, we've got some ebooks that are out. In fact, we just had one come out recently called Groundless 
and this is a look at Dan Barker. JP Holding and I vlogged it together. I handled the questions on the problem of evil and such, and he handled most everything else as well, but we do it together. And of course, I've got one that I've written on my own called A Creed for the Ages, a look at the Apostles' Creed in today's Christian, because at our church, we do say the Apostles' Creed regularly, and I wrote this as a gift from my church so that they could know more about what the Apostles' Creed says and appreciate it more. When you buy these books, some of the proceeds do go to help people waters. And I would encourage you, please, please do this. It means so much to us. Uh, Sarah, do you have any cause you'd like people to donate to? Um, yeah, I would just suggest um, I work for Online for Life, and they're an amazing nonprofit organization that saves babies from abortion. Mm -hmm. um, so I would just encourage people to go to onlineforlife.org and donate there. Um, and then um, just, you know, just I guess for me, like my biggest heart is for single parents. So um, if you know a single parent or you're if you have one in your life or you know of one, I would say reach out to them and find out what you could do to help them. Mm -hmm. Now, you this Online for Life, do you have a website they can go to? Uh, yeah, onlineforlife.org. Okay. Now, when we were talking you know, about the way the church is and the intellectual growth and such, and it, it's absolutely true of what you were saying. I had had something happen a few nights ago because I started reading an N.T. Wright book, and usually it's kind of like, I better have my ink pen with me when I'm reading N.T. Wright <laughs> because I want to circle every single thing that he says. And just about 20 pages in, I'm just getting new and new insights, and, I'm, and I go to bed one night and I start thinking about this. And all of a sudden, I feel like I've, I've hit this brilliant insight. And I was just so excited. And if you mind, Allie's not the way I am. She doesn't get excited intellectually the same way that I do. And there was a part of me that was tempted. I didn't, but I was tempted to wake her up and say, Oh, Allie, you have to hear this new thing. I've just come to the conclusion of it's going. It's so fascinating. And I can picture her doing that and hearing her say, You woke me up for this. I'm going back to bed. <laughs> that, that, that's way it is and but uh, I, I think what you've been saying also is that people do tend to look down on that like that's somehow inferior and it's not inferior it's just different mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, I just think that the church needs to be more aware of the different ways that people relate to God and the different ways that people um you know not everybody just uh reacts the same way to everything, you know, and I think that we need to realize that it's no longer one size fits all. Mm -hmm. Now, you said uh, Lachlan was in schools as well. Is that, is that the public school system? Yes, he's in um, public school because um, private schools actually don't offer um, any type of uh, special needs services. So, um, and I, I couldn't as a single parent afford uh, mm -hmm. school, but um, yeah, he's been in public school and I've been so blessed because really like obviously as a Christian, like it's hard for me to have my son in public school, but um, the way that they have been um, just helping him and they really do an amazing job with special needs kids and they they are you know the state does um give them money for uh specific special needs programs so for example at my son's school they have a sensory gym 
for kids with special needs. And Lachlan, um, sometimes he gets overstimulated at recess or um, mm. different things, and he can't focus on his work. So they've actually started having him do sessions in the sensory gym before he goes back to class. And that has really helped him focus on his work. And so um, I think that there are a lot of positives um, in public schools that really make an effort. My my parents tell me that I was the first one on the spectrum in our county to make it through the public school system entirely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that since, you know, we've been kids, I think that there's been a lot of um, improvements and um, strides made in special needs education. Mm. Uh, so I'm just glad that, you know, now that, that I have my own son, um, even if things weren't the greatest when I was a kid, at least now I feel like they're they're really making an effort. I'm guessing that content-wise, Lachlan probably doesn't really have much problem with what's being taught at school. Um, yeah, no, he, he, you know, he fully understands everything he's being taught and, um, you know, obviously he's in first grade, so they're not doing rocket science or anything yet, but, um, you know, he did have a hard time with the amount of work, uh, that skipped from, you know, when you go from kindergarten to first grade, the, the amount of work escalates, um, they expect a lot more from you. So it, it's not really the content of the work. It's more the, the amount <laughs> that, um, they require because of his ADD has a hard time sitting still for long periods. Does he take any accelerated classes? Um, no, he he really just is in, um, he's been in special education classes for the mm -hmm. first three years, and now he's in a mainstream classroom, so okay. this would be considered accelerated for him. Okay, so I remember when I was in first grade, they pretty much immediately started me on second grade math, and yeah. Uh, I was the youngest one, first third grader to be in the math Olympiad because when I was in school, math was my main thing. Mm. <laughs> and when you were talking about uh, having no trouble with the content, when I interviewed Mike Lacona, my father-in-law, of course, last year, I was talking about the importance of doing study and such. Because Mike and I are very different in this regard. He he would tell you he is not a natural academic which would probably mm -hmm. be surprising to a lot of people. <laughs> but he, he was more music-oriented and martial arts-oriented, not the academic type. And so he would say, yeah, if he, he learns his stuff, he has to sit down and study and read a lot and do a lot of work. And I said, and I was a kind, I mean, he was getting like bad grades in school all throughout. And I said, meanwhile, I'm the kind that I went to school and I came home, played video games all evening, and went back to school and still got A's in practically everything. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you make me sick with that coming. <laughs> but then point out, but here's some here's where the similarities come in. Both of us, in order to excel in this field, we both have to research and study and learn all that we can. I mean, I I, I can't just sit down and say. Well, because I'm on the spectrum, I don't really need to read all these books. No, I still need to be reading them. Uh -huh. uh, I think you found that people that can be on the spectrum are intellectually focused. Candy wouldn't be the reward as much as learning. Uh -huh. We love learning things. Yeah. 
Yeah, Lachlan definitely loves learning um, new things. I think that for him, though, like uh, when you have something in in conjunction with autism like ADD, um, it kind of messes with his concentration a little bit. So he has a hard time sitting still for long periods of time. So um, at first when they just said, oh, he has autism, I was like, well, I don't understand. Like his kids with autism typically are kind of more what you're describing. Um, But he, for whatever reason, like he couldn't do that. And so I was like, what is going on? And then we found out, you know, he also has ADD and some anxiety about things. And so because of that, he, um, it kind of makes it so he's not as focused, um, you know, and, and so we've been kind of working on techniques for how he can get more focused on that. Yeah, Allie thinks that I've got some ADD too because it's hard for me to think about just one thing at a time and her her parents have gotten used to it because they used to think I was being rude because we'd be having a conversation together and I'd be on my Kindle playing a game or something like that because I, I, couldn't, I wouldn't read a book while they were talking necessarily but I'd be doing some sort of game and then they realized that well he's really hearing everything we say and he's really interacting it's just his mind won't stay focused on just one thing like mm-hmm. that, so he needs to have multiple interactions going on. Yeah, yeah, and Lachlan's very similar in that sense. He, um, you know, he he's jumps from one thing to another very quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's very similar. Yeah, my my folks used to say they could come into my bedroom and I'd have a little TV set up. I'd be watching a show. I'd have the radio on and some music, and I'd be playing a video game on the main TV at the same time, and I'd know what was going on and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how does a Lachlan relate to other children? Um, he, you know what I was, when he was younger, um, he got bullied in kindergarten, and so um, I was a little bit worried. Um, for a while, but then that kind of ended, and um, he seemed to be doing, um, you know, okay, and and everything, but he was having a hard time making friends, and then. Um, randomly this year I decided you know since I have the freedom to I'm gonna um, try to go on some of his field trips and really just see like Mm -hmm. how he's doing with other kids Um, and I was pleasantly surprised that I was worried that he was um, too emotionally young for them that he wouldn't be able to relate to them Um, but I found out that you know I went to this field trip just he had recently and all the other kids you know they were like Lachlan and they loved him and um, they they were able to relate to him and um, you know sometimes he doesn't understand the limits um, sometimes he pushes other kids to maybe do things that they don't want to do because he wants to do it or um, has a hard time with sharing or but I think that's what we were talking about before you t- you kind of get self-centric a little bit um, not because you want to be selfish but because you're more you're most comfortable in yeah. your own zone Um, you know so I think that that makes it a little bit difficult for him to relate to other kids because doing non-preferred activities is very hard for him and so um, just learning how to occasionally be like you know what that's not what I want to do right now but because it's what you want to do I'm willing to I'm willing to do that and Mm -hmm. um, I think learning that sharing and give and take um, as he you know as he gets older I think um, that's going to help him in his relationship with his friends. And I think that he's already kind of learning that. And so I was pleasantly surprised to see that he did have, you know, some good friends at school and, and that, um, you know, there were people who um, genuinely loved him and, 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 you know, really wanted to be his friend.
friend and we have some kids in our apartment complex that go to a school and um, they've already been playing together a little bit. And so, um, yeah, so, so there are some challenges for sure, but I think that, um, you know, being involved as a parent and monitoring their interactions, I think helps because, um, you know, the kids can see that you are making sure that your child is, is, uh, sensitive to their needs as well. And so I try to intervene when I feel like Lachlan's not being fair or um, I try to use it as a teaching situation where I can say, well, you know, you may not want to do this right now, but we just did something that you want to do. So now let's do something that the other child wants to do. Or um, I think that really being involved as a parent is huge for teaching your kids how to interact with others. At the same time, I, there's also a dangerous point sometimes. And I remember telling this to you, and I lived in Charlotte with a, going out with a friend. He he was with his family, and they he said, "Why don't you join us? We're going to be having dinner here." I said, "Yeah, okay." And his sister was getting ready to move out on her own, and she's not special needs or anything. But I was talking to both of them, and telling the sister, "You know, here are the realities that you are going to experience when you move out of here. Is what you're going to have to learn to do." And she was listening to it and everything. Her mother was just thrilled. I hear someone else here saying all these things, and I turned to her and said, Now, when your daughter is out here, you're going to be tempted to come to help her <laughs> out, to do everything you can for her. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you have to find that fine line, because you're trying yeah. to take care of your son, make sure no one's hurting him, things like that. But at the same time, he has to stumble and fall sometimes, and he, right. he has to learn how to be independent. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I have been, I have been working on finding that line, you know, I do let things go sometimes and let the other child handle the situation and say, you know, Lachlan, you can't do that. Or, um, you know, just kind of see how, how he would handle it without me intervening. And, um, so there's definitely both sides of the coin that you, you for sure have to, you have to make sure that you teach them how to interact correctly, but you also have to let them learn how to be independent and take care of things on their own. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, because he's only seven, I feel like I've still got a few more years, but <laughs> yeah, I do hope that someday he's definitely independent enough to be able to, um, not have me near and still be able to, you know, handle things on his own yeah it, it i'm sure this would be much more of an issue when he's a teenager but how does he relate to the young girls in his life right now um he you know at first obviously he's like you know ew girls mm -hmm. <laughs> um because he's a little boy but now he um has actually friends at school that are girls and it's really just it's very innocent like there's no um you know he's still very innocent he still doesn't realize the whole boy girl thing mm -hmm. um and so he just treats them like they would be like a friend that's like a little boy like he just treats them the same way he would treat anybody um and you know they come over and they'll play dinosaurs with him or they'll go to the park together or whatever and it's really it's um i just think that right now they're they're young enough to where that's not an issue um yet and and he just treats them the same as he treats anybody yeah. I think my mother would say I never went through an ew girl stage <laughs> at all. I, I actually had crushes when I was growing up, puppy <laughs> and such. And she had me go to another school one time, and I turned out to like the school so much they kept me there. And I went there because there was a transition class, which is between kindergarten and first grade, if the right. parents don't mm -hmm. think the students are ready. And she was worried about me, came pick me up the first day, and I had two girls helping me out to my car, to the car with everything. 
And she's like, okay, I guess I don't need to worry too much here. <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, Lachlan, I think, is still, I don't think that he's at the point yet where he's realizing, you know, all that stuff. So I think I have a little bit of time before I have to deal with that. But yes, I'm, I'm definitely not looking forward to him being interested in girls in that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think any mother really is too much. <laughs> Now, when he's been uh, out in public elsewhere, have you had any difficult situations before? Um, yeah, we, you know, um, obviously, um, being a single parent, um, you know, you you try to have a social life and you you try to go on dates and things, but sometimes when you um, are with somebody, you know, they'll they'll invite your your child to come along, and um, those are always iffy situations because you never know how they're gonna go. So, um, we have had issues where, um, you know, we've been at somebody's house or. Um, we've been at an event at school or something, and he's had these um, just meltdowns that are that are just really hard. Um, and you know, now he's gotten a little bit older. He's gotten a little bit physical, and so um, he's you know he's over half my size. I'm I'm a small person myself, and so um, you know he he gets so stressed out and and so anxiety ridden that sometimes he'll lash out. Um, and, and he doesn't, uh, in the moment, he doesn't realize what he's doing. Um, and so, uh, he'll, he'll get very physical. He'll attack me sometimes. And, um, he, you know, that, that can be hard in public because people don't know what to do. Um, and really like the best way that I've done it is, is you can't diffuse the situation. Um, you typically like he, like trying to diffuse it, it doesn't work. So typically I just, um, take him like, and I put him in the car and I'll drive him home and we'll just immediately leave um, because really separating him from whatever caused the anxiety is the best way to uh, to calm the situation. And so, um, you know, we have had instances where I've had to remove him from somewhere and just leave without telling people, like, you know, I'm just walking out, like, and people are just going to have to deal with it. And my son comes first. And, and so, um, you know, I, I've learned definitely with him that when, when we're having issues, um, me reacting violently or, or um, getting angry or something like that is not like it doesn't help to spank him um, when he's having a meltdown like it won't stop it'll actually escalate it um, because then he becomes fearful that he's getting in trouble and so um, I've learned that um, you know comforting him and, and really just you know saying it's, it's okay it's fine I understand that you're stressed out and it's fine like you're allowed to feel this way um, but uh, then when we get home typically what happens is once the situation is calm and he comes to kind of comes to his senses and realizes what he's done he'll he'll typically come out to me and say Say, you know, I'm really sorry, mommy. I didn't, I didn't mean to get that angry. I'm sorry, I hurt you, or something like that. And then at that point, I'm able to have a teachable moment where I can say, you know, let's talk about what you did and, and why it was wrong, and um, let's talk about, you know, what what you're going to have to do because of it. And so a lot of times I will. Um, you know, he'll be, you know, have to go to his room for a little while or, um, you know, I'll, I'll say you can't have any um, entertainment, like no TV or iPad or anything for a week or something like that. So um, there definitely is moments where um, spanking works and there are moments when it's just going to make things worse. And so I think that um, kind of learning how to how your child best responds and learning how to diffuse a situation um, is really key 
um, because uh, sometimes just things happen that are unexpected and you don't really know how to deal with it. And so, um, you know, it's just really, it's a learning experience, but yeah, he has had situations in public where it's hard, it's embarrassing. Um, and people look at you like you're crazy and your kids like, you know, demon possessed and, you know, but, um, they just, they don't understand. And, you know, and so, um, I think just removing him from the situation is the safest typically. Uh, Now, something else that usually happens on the spectrum, and Allie and I are both examples of this, and even in this, we're still radically different, is your diets can be extremely unusual. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance, for me, I will only eat foods that I can handle with just my hands. And some of those foods are actually seafood, which Allie can't stand now because she hates the smell. She hates anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. If I have a pepperoni pizza, even as well, since it's got pepperoni, I have to brush my teeth before I can kiss her again, which is usually a good incentive for me to brush my teeth. But what's, what are some struggles you have with Lachlan in this area? Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> Introducing a new food is like World War Three, typically. <laughs> um, he has the things that he likes, and... Um, he is very strict on those things. He really very rarely is willing to try new foods. Um, he's extremely sensitive with his taste buds. So, um, you know, if a food is slightly spicy or if it has um, a strong um, flavor to it or something like that, typically he'll avoid it. Um, getting him to eat vegetables is very difficult. Um, you know, I've learned um, that, you know, he will eat things like green beans and broccoli and carrots. So I try to stick to the things that he will eat rather than trying to force something new on him. Um, you know, I feel like as long as he's getting the vitamins and the minerals and things that he needs, then there's no point in fighting um, to try to get him to, you know, eat more things. I, I was a very picky eater as a child. And so I think that, um, you know, but I have dietary restrictions and Lachlan has a lot of um, dairy and gluten issues as well. So I think that, um, you know, a lot of it is just that he inherited a lot of my dietary restrictions, but um, he really, um, I just try to stick to what works. And as long as it's healthy, um, I, I try not to go off of that too much. Allie and I, neither one of us really do vegetables. What I do is I have a V8 energy drink yes. in the morning. <laughs> that, that's it. And for her, her main thing is texture-oriented. She doesn't like the texture yes. of a lot mm-hmm. of foods. And for me, it's looks. I don't like looking at messy foods, things of that sort. If you gave me something that would just get all over my hands, no, I'm not interested, okay? <laughs> yeah, and I think that, you know, Lachlan's the same way. It's very texture-oriented. If something doesn't feel good in his mouth, like, he won't want to eat it. Um, you know, if something smells weird, he won't want to try it. Um, you know, and, and I think that we have a lot of those same, um, you know, same limitations. Like you were saying, if it doesn't look appetizing, like, I don't want to eat it. Mm-hmm. And he, he's very similar in that way. Um, and so, but I, I know that for myself, I was a very picky eater as a child. Like I had to have, you know, those, those plates that were separated, that, that nothing would touch each other. Mm-hmm. And, and he's very similar in that way, but I grew out of that. And so I have a feeling that like, you know, while he d- might have some things that are related to his autism, some of it's probably also, um, that he just has to grow out of it a little bit. 
Um, you know, but I, I do the same thing. I also get the V8, the vegetable juices, and, and he drinks those. And so, um, yeah, there are ways, I think, of getting around um, some of his eating limitations for sure. And also, a lot of people might be surprised about this with my interpretation of eschatology and having John Wharton and that was on a show who they think don't go this far. Is that we tend to be very literally oriented yes. when we hear things. And so you have to phrase things exceptionally clearly to us. Yes. Yes, yes. You you can't use any type of metaphor, allegory, or um, anything like that. Lachlan's exactly the same way. If I say... Um, you know, like, let's say I'll say a, a, a famous, like, catchphrase or, like, you know, something like that. He'll be like, wait, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I have to explain it in, you know, exactly literal terms what I mean when I say something like that. Um, yeah, it, he's exactly the same way. Everything's extremely literal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think, for instance, that we used to – we've got a street near – about 20 minutes or so from me there, but Main Street's called Broadway. And so when I'd hear, when I was growing up, all these things about New York people and such, and him about all these shows done on Broadway, I think, wow, that must be a popular street or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, that's the same thing. Like, for example, um, trying to explain, I mean, obviously he's a little kid, so we watch his little kid shows and movies and things like that. And um, trying to explain to him that things aren't real um, a lot of times is interesting because he does understand real and, and, and fantasy in the sense that, for example, like uh, when, when he watches superheroes, um, he hears that Thor is a god or a demigod or whatever, and then he'll ask me, but mommy, I thought there was only one god. That's what um, Captain America said. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, he'll be he'll he'll take that and he'll be like, wait, I don't understand. Why would they call Thor a god if there's only one god and Thor's not that god? And I don't understand. You know, so but it's good because it gives us um, you know conversation topics. And so I'll explain to him. I'll say, you know, well, this is fake. This is fantasy. This isn't real. It's just a story. Um, you know, I was like, and I try to explain to him, like, you know, when you're at school and your teacher asks you to write a story about a, a little puppy or something like that, I'm like, it's very similar to that, like where it's not necessarily really happening, but, um, you know, it's a way to kind of explain the types of powers that he has or, you know, that it, it's similar to God, but it's not, but he's not God or, um, you know, something like that. And so I, I actually kind of like, um, that, that he asks those types of questions because it, it really gives us a good deep conversation to have and um, explaining the difference between reality and fantasy and and um, often leads to spiritual conversations, which I really like. Yeah, I, I'm just still got going in my, my head the great line of, there's only one God, man, and I don't think he dresses like that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a great line. <laughs> now, we're again near towards the end of the show. What advice do you think you would give to parents when they find out their children are on the spectrum? Um, advice I would give when you find out, just, um, don't assume anything. Um, definitely do your research because I think that while not every kid's the same, um, having an idea of what could possibly happen will prepare you a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just definitely, um, loving your child and constantly reaffirming them is huge. Um, there will be struggles. There will be days where you think like, I can't do this anymore. I mean, I wake up and there are days where I'm like, there is no way I can keep going like this. Um, but you know, in the end it's always worth it. My son, 
you know, I, it's funny as people always ask me like, well, how, how is it? And I'm like, well, I'm tired and it's hard, but he's worth it. And that's, you know, that's really, I think, um, you know, it's a little bit harder as a single parent for sure. I think having two parents is great because you can tag team and you can part really partner in it and, and really help each other. But, um, you know, I think that just kind of knowing that it's going to be hard, but it's, it's worth it. Um, I think is, you know, is the big deal. Like, I mean, there are days where Lachlan is extremely difficult, but then, you know, there are days where he comes up to me and he gives me a hug and he says, I love you, mommy, just for no reason. And, um, you know, just those are the beautiful things. And so I think that, um, just really being prepared and, um, just being ready for difficult times, but also knowing that in the end, it's going to be worth it for sure. And I'd also add in that if uh, you have a child and you're seeing things that you think are unusual, yes, try and get it found out as soon as possible. Right. I didn't have her diagnosis until she was in the 11th grade. And I think she'd say, if I had found out about this sooner, I think things could have gone different because yes, you know, her parents raised her well, but there were some things that they could have done differently had they known about right. it. Right. Yeah, I think that that's so true. I mean, for me, it was only a year. He was only a year and a half old, and I started knowing. I, you know, I would try to teach him things, and he would look past me, and mm-hmm. it, it would be like he couldn't make eye contact, and um, he couldn't speak, and so there were a lot of things that I was like, this isn't normal, mm-hmm. and and don't. I would say one of the things is really be an advocate for your kid. Don't listen to other yeah. people. And they're like, oh, you know, he because a lot of people would tell me, oh, he's a boy. He's just maturing slower. Um, you know, they would, they would try to tell me that there's nothing wrong with him. And I had to fight for people to acknowledge the fact that maybe he did have, you know, something. And, um, so I would say like, don't give up, definitely fight for your child, be an advocate for them. And yeah, I try to get it diagnosed as early as possible because with my son, if I didn't get it diagnosed and I didn't get him into speech therapy, he might still be nonverbal. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, um, it's crucial that, that we recognize these things very early. And I'd offer my personal encouragement this in with people who have children on the spectrum. Not every child is high functioning and such, but if you have one that is high functioning, mm-hmm. like apparently Lachlan is, and like myself and Ariel, motivate us, find out what we really love, and let us mm-hmm. go with it and thrive with it. Because as I said in a blog post yesterday, I am very happy. With my life, I go to bed in a good mood and I wake up next day in a good mood, generally, and just thinking, I get to go to bed next to a woman I love and wake up next to her every morning. The thing that excites me so much outside of that, Christian apologetics, it's something that brings me so much joy and it makes a difference. And mm-hmm. every day of life, in that sense, is an adventure. Every day is a gift. And mm-hmm. you know, if you're a parent and you're sitting there worrying, is my child ever going to be able to make it in the world? Is he ever going to be functioning? Is he ever going to find that joy? Yes, your child very well can do that. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that that's crucial. I think finding out what makes your child tick and really feeding that. Um, like I said, for Lachlan, it's animals and dinosaurs. So we're always going to the zoo. We're always going to the museums. Mm-hmm. And um, I try to encourage that because I feel like that that really um, makes gives him joy. And that makes everything else a lot easier. Yeah, and if we ever had kids when they... I don't really care for sports, but if my kid found his passion, say, in throwing around a football and such, and he was on his school and he made on a team, I would be willing to do everything I could to make mm-hmm. it to every single game. Might not have any clue what's going on in these games, <laughs> but I would want to make it a point to try and be there because this is what makes this kid come alive, and I want to support him even if I have zero interest in the field whatsoever. Right, right. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, just being willing to be, and I think that that's crucial for any parent. I think, you know, any parent that sees that their kid is into something that they may not be familiar with or ready for, or, you know, it's it's not really about you. It's about, you know, your child is into this, and, and it's really important that we support them in that, and, and I think that goes for every parent. Yeah, and it goes for your marriages as well. Allie is not into projects the way I am. A lot of people might think, she is because she's the daughter of an apologist, she's the wife of an apologist. No, she's not. And I'm not into art the way she is, but I'm taking her to every art lesson she can, and she's behind me and affirming me in everything that I do in my fear because she knows that it matters and she knows that I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and generally also what people on the... <laughs> don't realize a lot about projects is yes we do need that encouragement generally because usually the church does look down on us yes yes i think and i think that's across the board for all apologists it's it's nice to feel like people uh think what you're doing is important because a lot of times um you can seen as fulfilling right right so yeah well um sarah it's been really fascinating having you on the show it's been a very good conversation but we're getting near to our wrapping up time. Now, you've uh, mentioned a number of sites here. First off, is there a site that for where people can contact you if they want to find out more about you and what you're doing? Um, yeah, uh, they can um, Google the Valley Girl Apologist, um, and I'm, I have a blog spot, so it's just valleygirlapologist.blogspot.com, um, and they can um, contact me through Google, or they can find me on Facebook, Sarah Inkenman. Um, they can email me at um, the, the Women in Apologetics website at Sarah at Women in Apologetics.com. Um, and, uh, or they can go to Online for Life, which is where I work. Um, it's onlineforlife.org. Um, so there, there's multiple ways of, of contacting me through all those websites. And I did say at the start, we have something about how to find the International Society of Women Apologetics. So, how do they do that? Um, yeah, you just uh, go into your internet search bar and type in um, womeninapologetics.com. Okay. Uh, is there uh, any uh, final message you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience today? 
Um, yeah, I just uh, want to encourage, um, you know, women that are interested in apologetics to just not be discouraged. Um, encourage mothers that, um, you know, you have kids that um, someday might go off to college and you want to equip them with everything that you possibly can. Um, so I would just encourage moms to get equipped um, to teach their kids why they believe what they believe. Um, I would encourage um, anyone who doesn't already support a pro-life organization um, to really get involved in the pro-life movement. I feel like um, really a lot of the reason that abortion is so prevalent is because the church uh, does not stand up the way that it should. And so I want to encourage um, churches, pastors, leaders, um, whoever, just to get involved in um, the pro-life movement in whatever way they possibly can. Um, Online for Life has a lot of different ways. Again, you can find it at onlineforlife.org. Um, and then also for, um, you know, parents of kids with special needs, I just want to, you know, say that you're loved. And um, I would just encourage you to find a church or a group of people that support you and can help you um, in what you're going through. And, um, you know, just uh, just be encouraged that, like I said, it's hard, but it's always going to be worth it in the end. So it's been great to discuss these issues with you. It's been a fascinating two hours. I hope you've enjoyed yourself as well, and I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Yes, definitely. Anytime. It was great. Thank you. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week, we're going to have Stephen Bedard on talking about how to make your church more autism.